0: I want to continue. If you guys want to get your Bibles out, you can look at Matthew. We're going to continue in Matthew. What chapter? Matthew, uh, end of 3, beginning of 4. And I'm starting again in my Passion Translation because I'm super in love with that right now. That's just the truth. I love the Passion. It is real, real good. Yeah. I'm having a real good time doing this particular series. We're talking about the kingdom of God and how it was birthed and how it became, be, began and how we're going to participate in it and what's required of us and what God's going to do. And it's real fun to kind of go line by line looking at the scriptures and what does it mean because that's just real fun for me. I don't know if it's fun for you, but it's fun for me. Come on in, brother. Exegesis or exegetical, either way. Come on in. You're getting right to the meaty part. Good for you. We just started preaching. I want to read. I want to back up. Last week we talked about Jesus being <coughs> baptized and going into the um, wilderness. We talked about the parallel between the wilderness that Jesus was in and the wilderness that the Israelites were in and how interesting that is. And I want to back up just one, sec- one little um, section and, and talk about something else. I'm going to read from Matthew Three twelve. When Jesus heard that John the baptizer had been thrown into prison, he went back into Galilee. Jesus moved from Nazareth to make his home in Capernaum, Capernaum, which is by Lake Galilee in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. He did this to make the prophecy of Isaiah come true. Listen, you who live in the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, along the road to the sea, on the other side of the Jordan and Galilee the land of non-Jewish peoples. You who spend your days shrouded in darkness can now say, we have seen a brilliant sight, light. And those who live in the dark shadow land of death can now say, the dawning light arises on us. So we're going to stop right there. So, you know, why did Matthew include all that? What's going on there with that whole passage from Isaiah? What is he talking about? Who's Zebulon? Who's Naphtali? Does anybody know what those names are? Janet, I know you do. Not you, Janet, don't say anything. Does anybody else know who they are? Okay, so history lesson time. Are you ready? Um, You remember that the Israelites were comprised of 12 tribes, correct? And what happened is when they came into the promised land, all 12 tribes were given pieces of land to occupy. I almost gave (laughs) a... um, Tim a slide of the map today, but I decided it was two last minutes, so I didn't do it. You're welcome. <laughs> the reason why this is super interesting, again, this is history. We're all going to learn our history because this is interesting, and this is included in the book of Matthew, and it's going to come back to something later on. When the tribes came into take the land in Israel. You'll remember they were supposed to conquer all the peoples and displace them and possess the land. Well, what happened was they did that a little bit. They did that here and there, and they got to be infighting. And after Solomon, King Solomon, he had a, um, a son, Rehoboam, Rab- Jer- Re- Re- Bo- Re- Bo- ro- yeah. and the people decided they didn't like him. So they're going to break off and make a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. So there's going to be a northern kingdom that has Israelites in it and a southern kingdom. What happened was the northern kingdom consistently had bad king after bad king after bad king after bad king. After bad king. It was evil, evil, evil. Worshiped other gods, did horrible things. And God visited his judgment on the northern kingdom by having the Assyrians come in and, and wipe out the Northern Kingdom and transport all the people all over the place. Back in those days when, um, when a country would take over another country, let's just say Russia took over the United States, they would come in and say, well, we're going to hold this land, and the way that we're going to do it is we're going to take all our people from Russia, and we're going to put them in your homes, and we're going to take you out, and we're going to put you all in Russia. And that's what they would do. That's what the, the empires would do when they came to possess the land. What happened with the northern kingdom, however, which was different than the southern kingdom, is it happened 700 years earlier than the southern kingdom because they were more bad, if you will. And also, what happened to them is Um, They got dispersed all over the countryside, whereas the southern kingdom was taken primarily to Persia and lived in one place and was able to return and possess Jerusalem back as a people group. That never happened to the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom left, got dispersed, and never came back and they kind their, their peoples became all mixed up and so this land of Galilee in particular this these tribes of Naphtali and what i said Zebulun were a mixed up people of all different kinds of races and non-jewish people and it was a humiliation it was a humiliation because israel was about being a pure race they were chosen and set apart by from by the lord and here is a part of Jerusalem, Galilee, especially the northern part of Galilee, that's kind of a hodgepodge of people. And the tribes of these two tribes, Zebulon, Naphtali, whatever you want to call them, are particularly humiliated because they've never been able to come back and really possess their land because they went off all over the place. All right, So now we've got Matthew talking about this, and he's referring back to Isaiah, which says, You who spend your days shrouded in darkness can now say, we have seen a brilliant light. And those who live in the dark shadow land of death can now say, the dawning light arises on us. So what I get out of this is, you know, there's a theme. We talk about this a lot. There's a theme in the Bible called the great reversal or a great reversal. We've talked about it before. We see that God is always in the business of reversing curses, calamities, um, and bad things that we have brought on ourselves or that have happened to us because of sin. He's, he's about saying, you know what? What you thought was going to be the end of yourself, what you thought was not fixable or rescuable, I'm going to go, I'm gonna go in and reverse that. And we see that happening here in this particular passage. Jesus is now... Not only is he himself the great reversal, he's going to go into the countryside of people who have been humiliated, who are not pure, who have all different kinds of people living there. And see, Those are going to be the first people he preaches to. Those are going to be the people that he um, brings his light to, the very, the very people that don't think they deserve it, that don't think that they're worthy of it, who really aren't the smartest people. They're the people that kind of the rest of the country looks down on. I hate to even make a parallel with the United States. Who would I, who, what state would I say that we all look down on? I don't know. I wouldn't make one, yeah. We won't make one. What? Nah, michigan babe. I didn't say it, but you did. I like to see that as the great reversal. The other great reversal I see in this is that you know when um, I don't, we didn't talk about it last week, but when Jesus was baptized, he's baptized in the Jordan River. What other what other story do we know about the Jordan River in the Old Testament? The Israelites crossed over the Jordan River to their promised land. They crossed from a desert over the Jordan River into the promised land. Now we've got Jesus in the Jordan River, going into a desert. We've got a reversal, going into a desert so that he can bring us a promised land, and a promised land that we don't have to attain by force. The Israelites had to go into the promised land and fight for their land. They had to go in, they had to kick out everybody else, and they had to fight and hold the land. Now we've got Jesus going into the Jordan River in our place, going through the desert, um, resisting the enemy, and coming out on the other side so that we can have a promised land that we did nothing to earn. We didn't have to fight it, right? It's the great reversal. It's the great reversal. God is saying, I'm going to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I'm going to bring light. I am going to bring rescue. I'm going to bring things to you that you can't do for yourself, and you don't deserve it, and you can't, Earn it, and you may, may be the most humiliated of everybody around you, and I'm coming to you first. That's who God is. He's going to the worst of us first, because His heart is for us, right? He did not create us for humiliation and slavery. Oh, right. We were not created for that. And when Jesus came and when the kingdom started, He goes, all thats, we're ending all of that. I am making a place for you where there is no slavery where there is no humiliation, where you're not in bondage to sin, I'm making a whole new place that you get to enter into. And there is nothing that you can do, no part of your history, nothing that can prevent you from entering into it. That's the message. That's the great reversal, which is what I like. So after, <clears throat> after we hear this in Matthew, the very next thing we hear is, in Matthew um, 17 4:17 17. from that time on he comes out of he comes out of the desert he's 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 resisted the temptation of the enemy we, we hear this thing from um, Matthew about the prophecy of Isaiah the next verses from that time on Jesus began to proclaim this message with these words keep turning away from your sins and come back to God for heavens Kingdom realm is now accessible. Now, that's the passion which I love so much. The NIV will say, repent for the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is available. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about before I get into what is repentance, which is a real, real fun topic, is after, it'll say in other, um, other books, the other Synoptic Gospels, that Jesus moved from Nazareth to Gala- to Capernaum. Both are in Galilee, but Capernaum is significantly different than Nazareth. Does anyone know why he moved to Capernaum? Janet, do you know why? Yeah. This is going to blow you away. John. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. Capernaum's in Galilee. We've talked about Galilee is... a it, for one thing, it's a very um, metropolitan place. We know that the centurion is there. A centurion is over a hundred different soldiers. So for a place to have a hundred soldiers, there must be some kind of a need for it. Matthew was called out of Capernaum. He was a tax collector, so they're collecting taxes for some reason. So it's a significant town, but it's in Galilee. It's in those. It's in um, the province of Galilee. It's. It's not particularly super. It's not like Jerusalem or Bethlehem or anything like that. It's it's more foreign, if you will, or international than some of the other cities, but this is the very best thing. Capernaum is a city that's named after the prophet Nahum. Do you know what Nahum did? Yes, he was a minor prophet. What was his theme? Nahum's theme was to preach judgment against Nineveh. Remember Nineveh? Do you remember this now? Nineveh was um, a capital of Assyria. And remember when God called Jonah and said, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach against it and they're going to repent and Jonah didn't want to do it and blah, blah, blah. That was the first time that God called, um, said, Nineveh, if you don't watch out, there's going to be judgment against you. And the first time they repented, correct? The second time God said, Nineveh, you're on my list. You've been real bad. You're on my list he spoke through the prophet Nahum. And Nahum, his whole book is about the coming judgment on Assyria and particularly Nineveh. Isn't it funny? Ooh, I got, got the goosebumps. Isn't it funny that Jesus decides he's going to go to Capernaum and make it his home base, which is the city named after the prophet Nahum, which speaks judgment against um, Assyria and against Nineveh. Assyria and Nineveh, represent evil and the forces of darkness, that are at war with God. And where does Jesus go? He goes right to the middle of it. He goes right to the heartland. Jesus's move to Capernaum was a symbolic act, an act of war and aggression to usher in a new type of kingdom based on grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Let that sit for you just a minute. Isn't that cool? He's like, oh, oh, I'm coming after you guys. I'm coming after the things that you think are going to hold you down. I'm coming after you. I'm going to start. This is an aggressive move for him to go to Capernaum. Isn't that fantastic? Oh my gosh, I love it so much. Here's what Nahum says in verse 113. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. Is that not a foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do for us? I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. Jesus did most of all his ministry in Capernaum. He, that was where he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. It's where he healed the demoniac, Peter's mother-in-law, the woman with a hemorrhage, two blind men, the centurion's servant, the dumb demoniac, and the paralytic who was lowered through the roof by his friends. Most of his disciples lived in Capernaum. They either lived there or moved there to be with him. That was his home base of ministry, was, was right in the heartland to take down the kingdom of darkness, if you will, and say, oh, I've, I've come to bring something else. That gives me the shivers. I love it so much. To me, I was trying to think of what would be a really good metaphor. I was like, what could I use as an example? You know what? It would be like, this is what it would be like for me. You know how Russia and some of the other um, countries taught communism? And communism is a philosophical and governmental system that actually says God is not real. It's part of the governmental system, right? It's not even like we don't care if you believe in God. It actually says There is no God. Atheism is a part of the tenet of communism, right? And for a long time, I don't know how it is now, for a long time, you couldn't have um, churches like the legit churches in Russia. They were heavily monitored by the government. And so God was really pushed out of their government. And we kind of see the result of what's happened. It would be like Jesus saying, you know, I'm going to go to Russia. Where they've kicked me out, I'm going to go there and start my ministry. And not only am I going to go to Russia, I'm going to start with Moscow. I'm going to start at the very center of what has rebelled against me and kicked me out. That's where I'm going to go and start my ministry. That's cool. That's really cool. All right. To me, the great reversal here is that the town that once represented God's message of judgment would now be known for the message of forgiveness and miracle-working power. And that Christ will bear the judgment for us all. But better yet, despite our sentence of judgment, we are invited into the best kingdom the world has ever seen. That's what Capernaum is going to be known for now, from now on. So the second thing I want to talk about now is this thing that Jesus says when he's preaching Keep turning away from your sins and come back to God, for heaven's kingdom realm is now accessible. Like I said, the other word for that is repent. NIV uses the word repent. But even John in in the Passion, John the Baptist, when he's saying come and be baptized before he even sees Jesus, he says the realm of heaven's kingdom is about to appear, so you'd better keep turning away from evil and back to God. <clears throat> in Mark, he says, At last the fulfillment of the age has come. It is time for the realm of God's king to be, kingdom to be experienced in its fullness. Turn your lives back to God and put your trust in the hope-filled gospel. That's all from the Passion Translation. And what this, what's interesting is John and Jesus are preaching the exact same thing. John's preaching it even before Jesus shows up. He's saying, repent and turn back to the Lord. So I wanted to look and find out what does the word repent mean. What do you guys think the word repent means? Anything else? That's just about exactly right. The, there was a trick question. <laughs> the Greek word for repent, it's, it's change your mind is actually what it is. The Greek word for repent is metanoia. It means change of mind. But it also involves the word um, turning around in, to a new direction, turning from one direction to another direction. So we break it up into two parts. It's meta and neo. Neo means, or um, noia. Noia means mind. What other word? It, so meta means turn or change. What's another word you can think of that has noia at the end of it? Paranoia. paranoia. That's exactly right. So that we get the word paranoia from the Greek meaning out of your mind actually. Mm-hmm. The thing about um, repentance though, it's not just turn it's not just changing your mind, it's actually changing your mind with sorrow or regret and going a different way. So what two examples of this in the Bible would be some people dispute this, Judas. Did Judas repent or did he just have sorrow and regret? Because repentance involves turning and going a different way. Maybe you're motivated by sorrow and regret, but you turn and you go a different way. Another example in the Bible that would exemplify this would be the prodigal son. We see the prodigal son getting into the pig pen. He had a change of mind, didn't he? And he got up and he went a different way. He said, I'm going to leave this pig pen behind and I'm going to go back. I'm going to turn and go a different way. That's a good example of repentance. He was motivated by sorrow and regret, but sorrow and regret is not just enough. You have to actually turn and go a different way. Have we, does anybody know of people that have just sorrow and regret but can't make that turn to go the other way? Have you ever experienced any of that before? Or even in your own lives? Where you've had sorrow and regret, but you haven't taken the next step to turn and go the other way. What are we going to say? Just continue domestic violence over and over. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, bring flowers. And then mm-hmm. Cycle. mm-hmm. Yeah, in an addictive or abusive relationship, you may regret what you do, but you don't do what it does you need to do to change and get out of that cycle, right? So repentance involves more than the regret, it involves the change, changing your mind and going the other way. So true repentance involves this: a change of mind, will, and emotions. For example, we talk celebrate recovery. People who decide to stop smoking, they're like, "I don't want to smoke anymore. I'm going to do what. I'm going to go get the patch, or I'm going to call the stop smoking hotline, or I'm going to be in a support group. I'm going to actually change my behavior, to change my mind to do something else. It involves a change of your way of life. And, you know, I was saying this. I actually had a mediation, and I was talking to someone, and they were saying something to me like, "Oh, I'll never do that again." And I said, "Oh, I believe that you'll never do that again. But no, one, I mean, I, you can say that you'll never do that again, but I won't believe you till I see that you never do that again." So actions always speak louder than words, right? Actions point to what you really believe. You can say one thing, but if you don't see the fruit of that repentance, you haven't really changed your way. You haven't changed your mind, right? If people say they're going to celebrate recovery and no, sh- never show up, they haven't really committed to that, have they? Or unfortunately, if they say they're going to go to the gym, like me, and they, never, and they never do it, you can say you really haven't changed your ways. You've said one thing, but you haven't followed through with the fruit of what you've said you're going to do. New Year's resolution. New Year's resolution that was mine, Sharon. Why did my guardian angel quit? Because I, I, gave it my, what is it? I lost my New Year's resolution in three days. Right. I an I'm an overachiever, right. repentance is both private and corporate have you ever met anybody who says one thing to one group of people and one thing to another group of people or perhaps live a double life where they say well I'm going to live and act and be this way with this group of people or in private but when I'm in public I act totally a different way any of you know people like that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah not true repentance true repentance is true all the way through it's true in your public life and in your private life true repentance is vertical and horizontal meaning that not only are you one way with God you're one way with people You've changed the way that you're going to deal with people. You've turned around to a different way of acting with people and with the Lord. It's not just with the Lord. It's, you can't be, I've got to say this nicely, you can't be nice to God and ugly to people. That doesn't work. Does that make sense? How can you say that you're following God? You've turned, you're repenting, you're becoming a new creation, but you treat people horrible. Janet says, God says you're a liar, which is true. (sighs) The other is, God becomes not just, you know, it's one thing to say, I'm going to turn and God is Lord of the universe. This is a real kingdom. I get it now. There's more than just what I can see with reality. There's actually a supernatural reality. There's one thing to say that, but there's another when you say, he's the Lord of my life. He sits on my throne. Not just the throne, but he sits on my throne. He makes my decisions for me. We had a conversation at, um, in our marriage group. You know, I kind of get a little preachy sometimes in our marriage group. Would you even imagine that? <laughs> And we were talking about, oh, you know, sometimes you might have a controversial subject come up and whether you should talk about it or be silent, right? And, and they were all trying to decide. And, of course, I said, well, your number one answer always is, God, what do you want me to do? Because sometimes God is like, be silent. I don't want you to say anything. And other times he says, say something. You need to speak to this or speak to the atmosphere or whatever's going on. The only way you'll ever get it right is if you ask God what he wants you That's to do, exactly right. right? And so we can repent and we can say these things in our mouth and say, you know, Lord, you're king of the universe. I, I totally get it now. I, you know, I'm, I'm yours. I'm gonna, I'm gonna treat people the right, but he's gotta be Lord of your life. He's gotta sit on your throne. When you, when you have questions about what to do, or you don't know where you're going, he's the one that you go to, not your own self. That's a real big deal. And that's hard, that's a big part of repentance that I don't think people get. It's part of turning, turning is saying, I'm turning to becoming a subject to God in my life instead of me being the Lord of my life. That's a real big part of repentance. Thank you back there. Repentance is the doorway to the kingdom of God. In John 10:9 through 10 it says, "I am the gateway. To enter through me is to experience life, freedom, and satisfaction." That's only one thing in mind. Oh, I didn't type it all in. Hang on. I am the gateway. To enter through me is to experience life, freedom, and satisfaction. A thief has only one thing in mind. He wants to steal, slaughter, and destroy. But I have come to give you everything in abundance. Get this one. More than you expect. Life in its fullness until you overflow. That's a picture of a kingdom of God. More than you expect. Fullness until you overflow. Overflow. The only way to experience that is to walk through who? Jesus. Jesus is the gateway. And we get to Jesus through that gateway through repentance by saying, I'm going to turn away from my own way of doing things to the, oh, there's the door. I'm going to walk through the door. I see it. There it is. There's only one way we get to experience the kingdom of God and as turning from our own way and turning to the way of Christ and turning to the way of Jesus. Jesus. I, kinda look, I was thinking, it's kind of like this. You want to go to Disney World and experience all that cool stuff? you got to buy a ticket and go through the turnstile. There is no other way to get there. You can't go around it. You can't bribe your way in there. You've got to go through the, the turnstile to get into Disney World. And once you get in there, it's fantastic, right? But there's no other way to get there. there you, you don't get there by working your way through it or by figuring something out. You have to turn your mind, and you have to admit that Jesus is the only way to get to that, that kingdom of God. What are some of the reasons... Oh, I want to say this. What repentance is not? And some people get this, some people get this confused. Repentance is not a focus on our sins of the past or present and try to do penance to make up for our sins. A lot of our really super cool um, superheroes that we watch are always about doing penance for what they've done wrong. We've been watching this incredibly Intense show called The Punisher, which I said I can't watch anymore. And it's all about making up for what you've done in the past. You've done horrible things in your past, so I'm going to make up for it. That is not repentance. That's not repen- what repentance is. Repentance is saying, I can't make up for my sins. I'm not Lord of my life. I'll turn over here and give my life to the Lord. And guess what? God will deal with all my sins. That's the whole reason that Jesus came was to do what we cannot do, which is make penance for our sins. We can never make penance for our sins. It'll never be good enough, which is completely different from making amends. Sometimes we talk in, in Celebrate Recovery or in support groups about going and making amends for things that you've done. When you're led by the Spirit to do that, it's completely different from making penance for your sins either present or in the past. We are not capable of doing it, only Jesus is capable of doing it. If you confuse repentance with a type of penance, that I'm going to make penance for my past, you're going to slip into what I call cheap legalism. Cheap legalism. Um, I, one of the movies that I, I really liked, but it was very sad, is that movie Manchester by the Sea. Mm -hmm. Have you guys ever seen that movie with Casey Affleck? Um, Do you mind if I tell you about it? You don't mind? okay? I don't like surprises, I'm okay. All right. Um, Manchester by the Sea, Casey Affleck is in it. He does this fantastic job. I think he might have won an Oscar or something for it. I'm not sure. But it's a story of a man who had terrible loss in his life because basically he uh, got drunk one day, fell asleep, and the house burned down and killed his children and he can't he can't get over the guilt of that he is trapped in this this gloom of guilt because he cannot forgive himself over what happened he cannot move past the fact that his children is dead and people around his life have moved on and he is completely stuck in this horrible place and i look at that movie and i'm like oh my gosh he needs the lord so bad because only the lord can go back to that horrible Act that happened and forgive him for it and heal him of it. We cannot do that ourselves. He's a perfect example of being stuck, and he cannot do what he needs the most, which is to be unshackled from the burden of that guilt and that shame of what happened in his life. And if we ever equate repentance with somehow healing yourself, making penance for your own sins, we will reduce it to a cheap legalism. We reduce it to legalism that is not the message of the gospel, that we cannot do for ourselves what only Christ can do for us. And if we try to do it, we will will be completely unsuccessful and miserable, and we'll put other people in in bondage because we'll teach it. So that's one thing repentance is not. That's pretty wrong. You, we, we can't redeem ourselves, can we? We can never redeem ourselves. Only Christ can redeem us. And to even try in a striving way is super dangerous. That it's, is my dysfunctional upbringing. Yeah. You know what? Guess what, Steve? Jesus came to your dysfunctional upbringing, so you don't have to live in that anymore. He, he came to that, and he says, we're not doing that anymore. I'm going to ground zero. We're getting rid of that bull crap, and you're going to live without that bondage. Right? Amen. Amen. That's right. So I want to talk about this. Why do you think some people can repent and some people cannot or don't want to? Guilt. Okay. Pride. Guilt. What else? Pride. Pride. What else? What, what about Control. They don't want to give up control. Yeah, you're up. Uh, okay, they don't want to um, die. They don't want to pay the price. Yeah. Here's some ideas I came up with. Like the rich young ruler, he doesn't want to do what he doesn't want to do. I've got my money. I have a love of money. I'm afraid that if I repent and serve Christ, I'm going to have to give up my money in my lifestyle, and I don't want to do that. I think some people are just rebellious. They're they're like, I don't want to be told what to do. I don't want to be told what to do by you or by you. Do you think that? How about this? Fear of man or fear of the world. Do you think some people don't want to repent? And when I say repent, I'm I'm saying turn around and face God and follow God because they're afraid of the world, or they're afraid of what people will think about them, opinions. How about this? Some people are unaware that they're lost. You think there's some people that are unaware of their loss? I know some people that are such moral pagans, such good people, they don't see their need for the Lord. They think they're living in the kingdom, right? But they don't realize the real kingdom that's out there. They're living in a good enough kingdom. So they're like, well, this is good enough. I don't need anything else until some calamity happens. And then they're like, what in the world? This little kingdom doesn't work anymore. Some people don't think sin is real or that it's just relative, right? Humanism. Some people are unconvinced and unimpressed. And I think this kind of goes hand in hand with they see a lot of hypocrisy in the church and they're like, I'm unimpressed with that. I don't want to have anything to do with that if that's what you people are doing. Other people are deceived, deceived, And just satisfied. Have you ever met people who have just enough of religion to think that that they've attained it all? They think, well, I I go to church and um, I've had someone say, well, I was raised in America. Of course I'm a Christian. I really had someone say that. Right? Or my mom's a pastor, so of course I'm a Christian. They've been vaccinated just enough to think that they've repented and are walking in the kingdom. That's real sad, isn't it? <laughs> and again, hypocrisy. Some people are like, I, I, do, I know people that used to um, hide their alcohol. They would be one, one type of person over here, but if some Christians came over for dinner, they'd go hide their alcohol. Hypocrisy. Mahatma Gandhi said this, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. So I just want to wrap it up with this. I want to do two things. Maybe there's somebody in your family or people that you know that needs to be able to repent. Needs to be able to um, turn around and come to the Lord. And not because... They are so ashamed of their sins, but because they see they see that Jesus is the gateway to a life overflowing, and they want that. If there's somebody like that, I want to pray for that. I want to pray for that person before we end tonight. You might have someone in your family or in your, someone you work with who needs to repent. And the other thing I want to I pray about is for us to be good examples of what repentance looks like so that we're not stumbling blocks to the people around us. Because ultimately, you guys, God didn't come just, Jesus didn't come for us, he came for the whole world. And we have a great commission to preach the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom everywhere. How do we do that well? How do we do that in a way that communicates what the kingdom really is and how we enter into the kingdom? So I want to pray for us, and I want to pray for the people in our lives that need be able to repent. Is that fair? Do you guys have anybody that you want to pray for? Any let me know.